So welcome to today's episode of the Independent Teacher Podcast. And I'm really pleased that I'm joined by Sophie Lovett. Good to be here. Thank you. Now, I'm going to get straight into the programme because we've got lots to talk about. And the first question, could you just tell our listeners about your educational background and maybe about your time as a secondary school teacher? So, yeah, it feels a bit like another lifetime ago training as a teacher. I trained at the Institute of Education in London in 2004, which itself was quite a progressive institution then and now, um, and went on to work. I spent the bulk of my career in a secondary school in East London, which was very inclusive and progressive. Um, So actually, it was a really exciting opportunity, particularly given the political climate at that time, to try out lots of interesting ideas, kind of explore lots of different ways of kind of empowering creativity and student voice. I was really inspired to try and give young people, I suppose, a more holistic educational experience that was very different to my own. Um, I had what on the surface was a very privileged educational experience myself. I went to an all-girls private school and was very high achieving on paper. I absolutely hated it and basically (laughs) spent the most of my 20s and even 30s kind of trying to find myself underneath all of that those kind of like exam grades and all the rest of it so when I was teaching I was really keen to try and find a way for young people to really kind of realize their own potential Um, and that felt really possible at the time but feels like things have changed quite a lot in schools since. What was it that concerned concerns you now maybe about the school education system? Because you, you were trying to change it. You were trying to create this holistic education. So what went wrong for you with the education system? There's an aspect of it which is quite party political. I very distinctly remember sitting in a senior leadership meeting um, the year that the Tories came into government and everyone around the senior leadership table, people who'd been in education for much, much longer than me, um, were in tears because they knew what was coming and they knew the shift that was about to happen in terms of the expectations that would be put on them and and on young people. So that shift has been towards much less creativity, towards much more focus on narrow exam results much more focused on kind of a return to like a factory model of schooling really where your children are empty vessels to be filled rather than recognizing them as kind of whole humans who've got something to offer and to bring to the table but I've kind of shifted further since then in terms of seeing the whole education system as it exists and as it has since the industrial revolution as a very kind of coercive controlling system that's basically creating the workers that the system needs to keep going, basically. Um, We can see in the kind of bigger picture the damage that that kind of status quo is doing, the the background of the climate crisis, of the socioeconomic crises that there are both in the UK and further afield. I am increasingly confused (laughs) or concerned or outraged, depending on what day you get me, (laughs) by the disconnect between what we're the world that we're raising our young people into and what the world actually needs and what they're actually going to need to be able to thrive. So yeah, I I feel like essentially schools are preparing young people for a world that doesn't exist um, and cannot continue to exist in the way that it has. You know, we we need a major societal shift, but it feels like our schools are going backwards at the moment and actually creating a future generation who are going to be completely powerless in the face of some of the huge challenges they're going to have to face in the coming years. 
So you you describe yourself as a change maker, but you've left the education system. How how can you make any changes if you're not part of the education system? So this is something I've wrestled with a lot, both within myself and with colleagues who are still working in the education mm-hmm. system. I was such a passionate advocate for state education when I was working within it and and prior to to working within it and I really was excited by its potential to to make a difference in young people's lives and kind of further afield but I think the more that I've come to understand partly through parenthood actually becoming a mother has has given me a whole other perspective on young people and their needs but also with the research and the reading that I've done I have have started to believe that the the system cannot really be changed from within you can make small changes you can improve the conditions within your classroom perhaps you can do small things which can be big things for the young people who are exposed to that um but what we really need is that kind of more of a revolutionary shift basically so I see I guess I see the work that I'm doing at the moment as trying to shift that Overton window trying to shift that um sense of what people believe is possible and to shift their sense of what young people can achieve and what adults as advocates and allies for young people can achieve. Um, And the organisations that I'm working with and the the people that I've met on this journey over the last 10 years since I've been outside the system are making me quite excited about the potential that there is for a completely different approach to the way that we educate our children. So can you tell us about that then? Yeah, so I guess a a big part of that is um, I'm co-chair of a charity called Phoenix Education, um, which was set up 20 years ago um, out of the democratic education movement in the UK um, and sought to bring democratic education to many more young people than was possible with the, the, the very few democratic schools that we have in this country. When you talk about a democratic school, could you just explain what that that is to our list. Yeah, absolutely. So there's um, two of the major ones in the UK are Sands School in Ashburton, which is very near to me in Devon, and Summerhill School in Suffolk is um, the oldest one in the UK, actually just got back from a festival celebrating its 100th birthday. Um, and the idea is that young people are able to make important choices about their education. They make choices about what they study, how they study, how they turn up, if they turn up. There are a lot of meetings, a lot of discussions. There's um much reduced hierarchy between adults and young people. So everyone's voice is valued in the space. Um, it's interesting because it's it, so it that that kind of is the history of um, where this freedom to learn movement came from. But it's evolved in quite interesting ways um, through this freedom to learn network, which is one of the key arms of Phoenix's work, um, which now brings together. I actually don't know the exact number, but it's an ever growing number of self-directed learning communities across the UK, which are kind of taking that democratic ethos and evolving it into something that's much more dynamic and um, consent based and rooted in in social justice and um, empowering young people's voices and th- this for me is where there's something really exciting about how we can work with young people to enable them to educate themselves really because that is what it's about it's about it's about self-direction and it's about having that very strong internal compass of recognizing your strengths and your interests and being empowered to to pursue those 
the outcomes are really varied. They they are as as varied perhaps as um, within mainstream school. But it, so you have young people who will decide when they get to teenage years that they might want to study GCSEs. They might decide themselves that they want to go into college. They might um, decide that they want to go to university without actually having had the formal qualifications behind them that you would expect them to need. Um, and universities are often very willing to accept students on the basis of portfolios and interviews without necessarily needing all the things we're told that they need. <laughs> um, and um, you know, and, and young people often thrive in that um, higher education environment because they are very used to independent study and very used to um, focusing on the things that interest them. And of course, then there's other young people who never go into that formal education route. Um, they might uh, develop their own entrepreneurism in their kind of specialist area that they enjoy. They might follow um different apprenticeships and things like that. There's actually a really um, fascinating study, uh, ongoing study that a photographer and uh, home educating parent Becky Graham is doing. Um, it's called a, a heuristic study into unschooling. And the latest part of this was an exhibition um, which was actually uh, held at the House of Lords showing the stories of these unschooling children and where they ended up in their lives and it was a it's fascinating to see the different parts because it's a fear <laughs> as a parent yeah. I'm not going to pretend it's not you know you have that thing of being like oh god you know what if, if I never train my children to follow this path then how are they going to survive in this world and then I look back on myself and I remember that as a highly able student who'd had all of the educational privileges you know lavished on me I left school having no idea what I wanted to do I went to university did history of art and philosophy because I thought they sounded interesting spent all my time coaching trampolining and in the drama department and it took ages for me to find my path I'm not even sure I'm quite there yet <laughs> um but yeah so I, I think basically it feels to me like there's no guarantee whichever way you go um so yeah <laughs> you mentioned the house of lords there mm. is there any political interest in what you're doing as an organization at all we're not currently in any discussions with the government, but we are becoming increasingly conscious that there is a movement here that needs to be um, cherished and potentially protected. Now, coming back to you, I think you're writing a book, aren't you? And you've got this fantastic website, which I love the title, Raising Revolutionaries. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us about what you're doing yourself and what you, if, you, if you're able to, what your book is about? Yeah, so... Um... So Raising Revolutionaries was a blog that I started um, a few years ago. It kind of grew out of my passion for writing, um, which was a passion that I was able to explore once I had children and stepped out of full-time teaching. Um, and I found myself increasingly wanting to explore how the impact that parenting and education choices have on young people um, and how we can make choices that are potentially more empowering at kind of in every, every phase of children's lives. So right from the choices we make when they're babies in the way that we interact with them and the way that we raise them through um, their kind of preschool years and school years um, and up to teenagers and young adults. Um, and I, 
I, I, I've been exploring this from lots of different angles, but I, I think one of the most interesting angles that has emerged for me over the last couple of years is I'd always sort of assumed when I was talking about raising revolutionaries that I was it was about raising young people and about raising children um, and empowering them to change the world, basically, because um, I do strongly believe the world needs changing. Um, what's become increasingly apparent is that it's also about raising ourselves and the, the revolutionaries we need are not just our children, you know, parents and adults working in education or working with children in any capacity need to do their inner work to kind of revisit some of their assumptions and um and move away from uh the those kind of the the, the narrative we've always been told and maybe have never challenged so this this is a book about that basically <laughs> um it's a book about how we can interact with with the young people in our lives um but also how we can um, start to transform our own mindset um, and interestingly on that basis I, I, I have spent the last couple of years kind of 2020 a lot of 2021 I was really focused on the book I'd kind of got to kind of written a full book proposal and kind of planned it all out got it all sorted and actually the deeper I went into the book <laughs> I realized that I actually was not living some of the stuff that was in there. So the book itself and the blog to an extent, I'm still posting every month or so, yeah. but a, a lot of my um, writing about this stuff is slightly on hold whilst I actually um, walk the walk as it, as it were. So, so actually a lot of my energy this year has been on, um, well, we, we chose to move house last year because one of the things that I uh, realised was that we I spent a lot of time talking about the importance of community and we were living in a very isolated um, village setup and neither me as an adult or my children had that community around them. So we've moved into a, a much kind of stronger community and I'm involved in a big um, community project to create a hub in the town. I'm also involved in creating my own learning community in the town to kind of bring young people together. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting process that writing. And I'm hoping now that now that I've kind of had the time to put some of my research and ideas into practice, then I will come to the winter when things slow down again. And actually this book will finally be born. <laughs> And I know that you talk sometimes about leaving behind your school mindset. Has that been hard? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, it's, uh, it is an ongoing process, the process of de-schooling, basically. Mm. Um, and it permeates every aspect of life. Like it's not just about education. It's about the way we show up in the world generally, the way we show up to work, the way we incorporate leisure into our lives the way that we are in our relationships with adults as well as young people um, and it is a constant process of, of checking myself and re-examining um, and I think you know it's it's a, a kind of well-worn trope the idea that children hold a mirror up to us but it really feels like in relation to um, to de-schooling and kind of moving away from that schoolish mindset that's massively been the case it's also been influenced actually the other the other big thing for us recently um has been a kind of journey into neurodiversity as a family um my eldest son uh had an adhd diagnosis earlier this year um which makes a lot of sense of 
why he's led us on this path that he has about carving out this different different right. route um but since then my husband uh has also had an adhd diagnosis and i am seeking a formal diagnosis having realized that many of my challenges and strengths right. over the years are very explained by that neurodivergent profile um and this seems to be quite a common thread for people in alternative education mm -hmm. i and it you know it make it makes sense i think there are a lot more neurodiverse neurodivergent people in the world than we had previously considered and um, neurodiversity is a superpower just as much as it's a challenge in a system not built for it so you know we're building our own system <laughs> it's a big part of that as well through talking to people who are in this movement whether it's in this country or whether it's in the united states every person that i've interviewed has been either an ex-teacher or they have worked in education, in universities. Have you found that that is the case within your movement, that you've got a lot of people who have come out of the education system because they know, well, they've experienced it and they're disillusioned with it? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say that the majority of people in my circle kind of fit into that category, but there are certainly a lot of people who either... Um, either have worked within education or had what look on the surface to be very kind of uh, successful education experiences themselves, but actually what they've learned inside is a very different story. Um, it's actually, I mean, it's something that's come up in the context of people saying to me when they first found out I was home educating, saying, oh, well, that's easy for you, you're a teacher. I could never do that, you know, um, and it's like, one of the big things that I always say is like you know it's like what teaching taught me was how not to educate my children <laughs> like it hasn't taught hasn't prepared me I don't teach my you know, the young people I share my home with in the same way as I taught children in a classroom because there are two of them rather than 30 on rotation through the door you know it's a very very different experience but I do think there is a certain truth in um you know teachers uh, having an awareness a deep awareness of some of the problems within the system um and and you know teachers are leaving in their droves we've got a huge issue with teacher recruitment in this country have, re yeah. recruitment and retention yeah, yeah. um because although, it you know, yeah. becomes intolerable <laughs> although i am talking in this series to somebody who is a career changer and she's just started teaching i think at the age of 40 and i'm speaking, uh, speaking to her next week and it'd be really interesting to get her her perspective of because you're so enthusiastic when when you when you start aren't you and um, yeah yeah there's still part of me that kind of misses it and I and a lot of that the the passion I had because I mean the, one of the big issues is that schools are the place where the majority of young people in this country are educated so it does feel like you know a bit of a cop-out to kind of be stepping outside and saying well I you know and it comes back to that change making thing we were talking about earlier you mm. I, I have to hold on to this idea that the work I'm doing can ultimately shift things for the better for young people more generally. Um, but there's there are there is going to be you know a generation of young people who or more who really suffer under this system. Um, so I have a huge amount of respect for the people who are there attempting to make that change from within and make make life better for those young people. Yeah, um, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because. There are people within the system who are trying to make 
significant changes. I should mention at this point, actually, the other arm of Phoenix Education's work. So we have this focus on kind of supporting um, families who are on a self-directed path, but the other arm of our work is actually within schools. Um, and so we are working with uh, both with teachers and with young people directly who are within the school system um, to empower them to make the changes from within as well and I do think that's really important it's very much what attracted me to Phoenix's work was recognizing both sides of that. Now we are coming to the end of our conversation believe it or not it's flown by <laughs> it's really flown by and I want to end by just asking you about something that you wrote on one of your your Facebook posts and you said, I wish the me from 20 years ago could have had some inkling of all the joy that was to come. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about that, because I think that'd be a really positive note to end on. Yeah, so I think I kind of touched on this earlier when I was talking about the de-schooling process. I, I think there is an unfortunate mindset within our society that anything worth doing has to come at a, at a cost, a kind of, you know, it has, has to be hard, has to be difficult. And, you know, I'm not someone to shy away from hard work, but I am also increasingly drawn towards opportunities to, to find joy, to seek joy, um, and whether that's through wild swimming or um, you know evenings around a campfire or singing with friends or all of these things I think that it is really important that we remember that we are you know we're, we're on on this earth <laughs> for a short time and we need to resource ourselves in order to be able to continue doing that work and I feel like I have to I have to give a shout out to my favorite author at the moment Adria Marie Brown who has written some incredible stuff around this in her books Pleasure Activism and Emergent Strategy and about how important it is both as individuals but also within uh, the wider movement of change making to incorporate joy at every stage and I love I always love a book recommendation as well and there's lots on your website aren't there on raising revolutionaries there are indeed yes and <laughs> lots more to come I've, I've done a lot of reading over the last couple of years and I'm trying to filter it in rather than just bombard people all at the same time <laughs> <laughs> Sophie can I say thank you so much for joining me today it's been an absolute pleasure and I've, I've so enjoyed our, our conversation and I hope our listeners will you know, recognise that there are people who are doing different things in education out there and really important approaches to education that we may not know about. We may not know about if we're teachers. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been really lovely to chat. Thank you. You have been listening to the Independent Teacher Podcast with me, your host, Susan Pallister. If you like listening to this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.